Good morning again if you came in a little later. We want to welcome you. We're delighted to have you all. Uh, We've been studying the life of Joseph for over 20 weeks now. And today we will conclude, um, he read part of the text, we'll actually conclude through chapter 50 this morning. But here we come to the end of the life of Joseph. And the Joseph account has has shown forth for us, hopefully you've seen this, that every narrative in Scripture from every age and every genre throughout Scripture form a central theme, and that is God's redemptive, restorative agenda for world history. Have you seen this? I've pointed it out enough times, I think we all have. Amen? Say hearty amen. Yes, we see this. Amen. 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 A redemptive, restorative agenda for world history. That is how we are to read the Bible. Or to use Spurgeon's metaphor, God's interlocking highway system. Yeah. Spurgeon. All of which serve as part of this horseshoe-shaped plan of redemption. Seeing as we do generational movements towards the ultimate redeemed Eden, that is a new heaven and a new earth, where in Revelation 22 we read, the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flows from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life. No longer there will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb of God will be in it. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. From Genesis 3 on, that's the theme of scripture. To get there. To get there. Now, through the Joseph account, we have seen, most certainly, crooked paths cloaked in divine providence. The crooked paths of these men cloaked in the divine providential purposes of Almighty God. The patriarchal family, as dysfunctional as they were, God used in spite of them. And what's the principle we've learned? We've said that God only works through dysfunctional families because that's all he has to work with. Yourselves included. So from the original promise of God, immediately after the fall of man, God promised a seed for the sake of redemption. God said to Satan in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He, that seed, the full manifestation of that seed will bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. The seed promise then puts us on a trajectory that leads us to Jesus Christ, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, who is the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the earth. That's how you read the Bible. We're all along the way. We've seen God use fallen man to carry the baton of his covenantal promises. 
And God intends, as he always has, to keep his people on the move, not only physically, but also metaphorically, to this very day, running the grand, redemptive relay race, even when the path is most certainly unexpected, personally speaking. So that redemptive race through men began most noticeably through Abraham, the one to whom God promised through you all the nations of the world shall be blessed, for which we are recipients to this very day as a believer. So when we get to Abraham's grandson, um, Jacob, it seems as though his leg of the race won't be run. Now, we've seen that the runners in the race are less than exemplary and actually very poor examples. Have we not seen this, beloved? But their significance, once again, is all tied up in the faithfulness of God and his promises, not in themselves. The significance is not in the man. It's not in the woman. It's in the the God of the man or the woman. Now, Jacob, as you recall, favored his 11th son, Joseph, uh, causing uh, a, a jealous stir within his 10 older brothers who sold him off to Ishmaelite slave traders. He was taken off into Egypt, and it has now at this point in time in the narrative been 40 years since Joseph entered Egypt. 40 where by God's providence, he rose to power only under Pharaoh, second in command over all of Egypt. And the main point of the story has been, like the rest of the Bible, it's all about sin and redemption. Sin and redemption. So this family was uh, reunited uh, by way of a great famine brought about by God himself, of course. He's the sovereign. He brought about the famine, which drove these sons into Egypt seeking grain. And who do they come in contact with? But their own brother. They don't recognize him. He recognizes them. He puts them to the test, many tests, to see if their heart is being changed by Almighty God. And sure enough, through several years and many tears, the family has been reunited in Egypt, given prime real estate within Egypt, that is, within the land of Goshen, separating them from being Egyptianized. God secures them in this part of the land. But this place in Egypt is not the final destiny of these people. It will be their resting place, so to speak, for 400 years. And Jacob, coming to the end of his life, blesses his 12 sons, And he now is coming to the end of his days. He's about to breathe his last. He gives his farewell address to his sons, these 12 sons that will become the 12 tribes of Israel in 400 years. And we went over those blessings and those promises. And there's two points for us, two key principles, two takeaways, if you will, to wrap up the narrative of Joseph. And they're quite quite simple, and they're in your outline. And one is hope. And the other is forgiveness. Hope and forgiveness. Let's look at hope first. Jacob, whose covenant name given to him by God is Israel, 
um, reiterates here in the text his wish to be buried with his forefathers. He actually commands his sons in verse 29. This is a command to be buried in his homeland. So as Genesis here in chapter 50 ends with the promise given way back in the beginning of Genesis, it is still unfulfilled in their time. It's being worked out. And the expectation is still, however, very much alive within Jacob that God will visit them, that God will keep his promise. So believing that the promised seed we will be victorious over the curse. God established a plan with these people. They are continuing to hold on to this covenantal promise. And here is Jacob as it's been passed down from his father Isaac and his father Abraham from God himself. Three promises given to these people. One is that there'll be generations of these people. The toldot, the, the, the generations of a people who were given. Secondly, a covenant. And thirdly, within that covenantal promise was a land promise for in which they would dwell. Covenant, a people, and a land. So, verse 29. Then he commands them, notice, and he said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite. And this is from whom Abraham purchased the cave back in chapter 23. A burial place. So why does Jacob command this of his sons? I mean, is, this, is he being sentimental? Is he being nostalgic, perhaps? I mean, this would be a very difficult command to carry out. If you think about this, it's a long trip to carry a dead guy. In the hot Egyptian sun, they would face the challenge of a decomposing body under the Egyptian sun, and as such, you know, this guy was embalmed. He says, I want to be gathered to my people. Right? That's a declaration that has to do, friends, with identity. I want to be gathered with my people. My people are God's people. I'm not an Egyptian. I'm not a Hittite. I'm not a Canaanite. I am one of God's people, and his people are my people. I'm a member of God's covenant the covenant that God made with my father, my great-grandfather, Abraham. Remember back in Genesis 17, verse 7, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojourning, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. I will be their God. There's a land, there's a people, there's a covenant. So this is not only a challenge for his sons when he says, I want to be buried with my people. This is a challenge for us is ourselves here this morning to ask ourselves this question. Who are my people? Okay, who are your people? This morning, I asked you this question. Who are your people? Who do you identify with? Yes, you profess Christ, but who do you identify with? Who are you companions? Who are you most similar to? Who are you most comfortable with? Whose values do you share? Whose beliefs are you locked arm in arm with? Does your identity... Out there in the world, does your identity out there 
mesh with what you claim here? It's a question for all of us this morning. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. That has much more, marriage is a big part of this, no doubt, but it has much more to do with just marriage. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? In other words, forming binding relationships with non-believers oftentimes weakens a Christian's commitment, integrity, standards, which will continually, continually tempt to the, the believer to divide their loyalties, being locked with the world. Now, we're not, we're not to, to run into a cave and, and live away from the world, are we? We're not to be monastic. But we are to be light in the world. And if we're going to be light in the world, then we have to be in the world. And the challenge is to be in the world without becoming like the world or being of the world. So we must take into account then who it is we identify with. Who are your peeps, to put it in the vernacular? Who are your peeps today? Jacob says, as a testimony to his boys, I want to be buried with my people. And this will speak as a testimony for generations. So Jacob dies. Notice, he draws his feet up into his bed with great composure, with great calmness, and he yielded to death without a struggle. Have you ever witnessed the death of an unbeliever? And they rage at death because there's nothing that they can do about it. told you probably a hundred times I've been at the deathbed of people giving them the gospel and they rage against Christ until their final breath. It shows you salvation is of grace alone. Let's not forget how this man, Jacob, whose covenant name is Israel, came into the world with a struggle. With a struggle. Genesis 25, 22. The children, remember he's the twin of Esau. The children struggled together within her. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. And two peoples from within you shall be divided. Much later on as an adult. After living years as a liar and a manipulator and a deceiver. Oh, God meets up with him. In In Genesis 32, 28. God said... Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have struggled with God and with men. So as God changes Jacob's name to Israel, Israel becomes the identifying name of God's people. Great transformation. So it's not so important how we enter life as it is how we leave this life. So he pulls his feet up into bed, and he calmly goes to sleep. And that's how the Bible in the New Testament refers to the death of saints, is sleep, right? It's body sleep. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The, the Bible goes so far as to say for the believer, he'll never even taste death. This body, yes, will pass, but you will pass out of it into the presence of the glorified Lamb who redeemed you, purchased you, owns you, bled you. For you, died and rose again 
for you, ascended for you, so that you will one day ascend. See, Jacob's hope was built on the promises of God, not his past, not his presence, but the promises of God. What do we sing? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust this, almost did a tongue twister. I, I dare not trust in the sweetest frame, easier to sing than it is to say, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. So in the face of death, we find our faith either confirmed or refuted. In the death of loved ones, we find our faith either confirmed or refuted. Genesis 50, verse 1. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, remember, he's the most powerful man in Egypt, to embalm his father. And beloved, death has no less of an impact today than it did 4,000 years ago. It's still a sting. And we are no doubt to mourn with those who mourn, yet we are enabled to grieve with faith. Grieving is good, but we have faith while we grieve. Amen? 1 Thessalonians 4.13. We do not want you to be uninformed brothers, writes Paul, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no what? No hope. We have hope. This is our hope. For all in Christ... The, the, the death of the body is only the beginning. It's hard when you lose loved ones, but that's the reality. It's only the beginning for the believer. Glory. Glory. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty five. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Satan appeared victorious, I said appeared victorious in the Garden of Eden. He appeared victorious, but Jesus, by agonizing in the Garden of Gethsemane, went on to conquer sin and death, removing the stinger from death for those who are in the sun who agonized in the Garden, defeating the serpent. So here he goes on now, Joseph does, to have his father embalmed. And there in verse 2 and in verse 26 are the only two places in Scripture where we read about embalming to God's people. Because Hebrew people always buried their dead as soon as possible after death. They'd wrap the body and bury it the same day. So Joseph here has his father embalmed for the trip. And he, notice here he uses Egyptian physicians. And this is important to note because the ones who normally did the procedure were Egyptian priests according to their religious customs. So Joseph, being a man of God, does not want to give the impression of a cultural pagan assimilation. So he makes not use of the Egyptian priests, but the doctors the local doctors. 
And that's why it's so important, beloved, in our day that, that ceremonies and service, services must testify of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. May we not have services for any of our people that, that, that are merely religious conveying unity and diversity of relativism. Coexist, brother. No, not in our services. We serve the one true God, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what's in the mind of Joseph here. In verses 4 through 6, Joseph asks of Pharaoh if he can go bury his father. This, by the way, is a weighty request. This, this is wisdom personified right here, this man. And he's asking Pharaoh to depart. And notice he's shown great honor. Is Egypt's royal prince. And this is the only place we're told that Joseph ever leaves Egypt from the time that he was 17 when he arrived there. Very interesting. This is 40 years later. His first departure. And then in verses 7 through 9, we see a great funeral procession here. Servants of Pharaoh, elders of his household, elders of the land. You read of chariots and horsemen and this great procession. This would be like a presidential procession. Like Kennedy's procession. Remember when he died? You've seen footage of that? This is big time. This is big boy baseball right here. Verses 10 and 11, they arrive. They lament. And their grieving is recognized. They lament for 70 days, which is huge. Because for the pharaohs, you would lament for 72 days. And Jacob is shown, shown such honor, no doubt due to his son Joseph, in all that he, according to God's divine providence, has provided for Egypt. So they mourn. They, they lament up in Canaan now. And... The Canaanites recognize this, and they rename this location. They rename this region. If you look at your footnote there at the bottom of your Bible, it, it means the, um, what does it mean? The garden of Egypt, or the meadow or morning of Egypt? Footnote, what does it say there? The morning or meadow of Egypt. They rename this place in recognition um, of showing shared affection with the loss of this patriarch. You know, they really don't know who he is, but it shows the impact that they had. So here he is laid in this tomb, hewn out many, many years before this. And you know what this is like, beloved? This is like, this is like staking a claim on the land that God promised long ago. There he is buried. And beyond that, this is for us as well that our future is much greater than our current circumstances. Okay, they were in Egypt. Their father died. They, they've heard of all these promises. They're going to be there 400 years. They stake claim right here in the land of promise. And, and, where, and where is our promise? We read in First Peter, Second Peter actually, <laughs> chapter 3, verse 13. According to his promise, promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. A resurrected universe, beloved, devoid of sin, devoid of suffering, and death. Amen is right. Okay, I want you to go back to verse 33. Okay, 
though they've traveled so far to carry out the command of Jacob, to be buried with his people, to be identified with his people, Jacob, verse 33, breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Did you catch that? Before his body was caravaned into Canaan, he was already gathered to his people. Not his body, but Jacob, Israel, who indwelt that body for 147 years, gathered to his believing family. And this is a reality for all true believers, beloved. This is a reality for you today. You remember on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus changed for the eyes of his three apostles from the physical into glory. And who was he conversing with? Moses and Elijah, who were doing quite well, were they not? They were alive and well. Jesus said in Matthew 22, verse 31, Have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the what? The living. God of the living. You see, when the saints of God pass on, they leave one family to join a much larger family. Matthew Henry put it like this, quote, Though death separates us from our children and our people in this world, it gathers us to our fathers and to our people in the other world, end quote. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 6, So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Now, does facing the unknown cause anxiety for anyone here? Yeah, we're only human, amen? You ever get anxious? I get anxious. You know, I pray for the same things all the time. It's kind of an anticipatory fear. I anticipate certain fear of certain people. Not not, not that I'm afraid of them, but I I fear certain things for them. So I'm almost praying constantly uh, with this certain sense of anxiety. Can you relate to that? I mean, we're only but we're ever growing in faith, right? And ever growing in confidence of the promise giver who is the promise keeper. Amen. So, although the death of a loved one hurts deeply, it's only faith and trust in our Lord Jesus Christ that we can share Paul's hope here. We walk by faith, not by sight. And continually, we have to be reminded of these things. In Philippians 1, verse 21, Paul said, For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. I'm hard-pressed between the two. Let me ask you if you've ever been hard-pressed like this. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart, okay, that is to die in the body, and, and be with Christ, for that is far better. So notice this. Paul's purpose for living was serving Christ by serving the people of Christ, like these people up here this morning. His purpose for living was to serve Christ by serving the people of Christ, yet dying would be a great advantage, says Paul. To be with Christ, the one that I serve now. So I'm hard-pressed. Yes, my family needs me. Yes, certain people need me, but I'd rather die and be with the Lord. But while I'm here, I'll serve Christ. That's what he's saying. 
Psalm 116, verse 15, mark this down. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Why? See, this is our hope, beloved. This is our hope. Why? Because he wants his saints ultimately to be with him. You are a purchased possession. When you go buy something, do you want to take it home? If I came and took it from you, would you be upset? Yeah, because I don't own it. You do. He owns you. He wants to be with you. He purchased you as a possession to be with him. So here then, there's this great caravan. Back to the text. In this great caravan provides for us a hint. It gives us a hint. It provides us a glimpse of God's final gathering of his people in his second coming. This great company, verses 7 through 9, are made up of, of, of Hebrew people and Gentiles. In Isaiah 66, 20, notice what we read. Then they shall bring all your brethren for an offering to the Lord out of all nations, on horses and in chariots and in litters, on mules and on camels, to my holy Mount Jerusalem, says the Lord. Pointing, of course, beloved, to the great day when Christ returns and calls his own family to himself from throughout the world. It's a beautiful glimpse of that. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 17. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. On what? A new heaven and a new earth. That's what? Forever. Isaiah 65, verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. Did you get that? Everything we worry about now, what about my loved one? What about this one? It won't even come to mind then. This is our hope. This is our hope. This is one of the takeaways from the Joseph account. This glorious hope. This is not empty hope, beloved. This is a confident hope. The world has all kinds of empty hope. They make it up as they go along. Right? You create God in your image, you have some sense of hope. It's an empty hope. It's void. This is a confident hope. You see, hope is the expectation for something to happen. Faith, true faith, gifted to us, is the confidence that it will happen. If you die today, do you know you will go be with the Lord? If you're in Christ, you ought to know that. That's a confident hope. That's an assuring hope because of the residing presence of of the Holy Spirit in your life. His spirit bears witness with your spirit that you are, we are children of God. Therefore, to die is to be with the Lord. That's our hope, a purchased people. So there's the first takeaway, hope. The second is forgiveness. Forgiveness. Okay, now the brothers in the text, they are met now with a a recurring nightmare of old. Notice. When jo- verse 15, when Joseph's brother saw their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. Are you seeing this? You know, it's been said that beside every grave, there are feelings of guilt. Beside every grave. There are feelings of guilt. That's exactly what happens at the foot of Jacob's grave. 
for these 10 sons, 10 out of the 12 sons of Jacob, who's just been laid to rest. Verse 15, again, when Joseph's brothers saw their father was dead, they said, Joseph probably wants to kill us now. He'll probably take this opportunity. So the implication being, Joseph's restraint was the life of their father. Now that he's gone, there's no reason for him to hold back his wrath. What shall we do now? So they send him a note. Verse 16. So they send a message to Joseph. Remember now, he's second most powerful. They live in Goshen. He lives in the palace. They're not like hanging out like on the porch, you know, having iced tea together and stuff. They sent a message to Joseph. Now they're hoping to soften him up before they were to meet him face to face, saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of our brothers, of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Trying to get a read on Joseph here. So they send him a note. They make up this story about dad. Joseph knows this isn't true. Joseph and Jacob had a very wonderful, great, awesome relationship. And Jacob would have told him this. So what is this a matter of, beloved? On on, on the case of these brothers here, this is a lack of trust in Joseph. This is a lack of confidence in Joseph's love for them. This is very important. This is a defining moment for their lives. They are afraid that their sins will bear the fruit that they do indeed deserve. Does your sin deserve punishment? Okay, now that dad is gone, Joseph's free to punish without hurting daddy. So despite all the promises that he made to them years before, having canceled their debt, they still don't believe. They wonder, what if he's bitter? They wonder, what if he's vindictive? What if he has been calculating and waiting for an opportunity to dispense revenge upon us? Maybe you live your Christian life like that. Some Christians live like this. They're they're, they're unable to escape the memory of some sin. They're unable to escape the memory of some series of sin. Year in year, year in I should say, and year out, they struggle for assurance and they struggle for reassurance. That is the reassurance of God's forgiveness and love for them. Never able to accept it. Always wondering, has has he truly forgiven me? Does he truly love me? I believe in him. I confess his name. I've been born again. I mean, I believe and trust in Jesus Christ. But perhaps he's just waiting for an opportunity just to crush me. He's going to get me. I just know it. That's no way to live, beloved. So this lack of trust in unbelief with regard to Joseph's love for them, having saved them from famine, having served them. Okay, the the famine, by the way, has been over for 12 years. Okay? He saved them from death and has provided for them all these years, and now they, they doubt him. And notice, it strikes him deeply. Verse 17, Joseph hears this. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Wept. 
How does God feel? When a believer, I'm talking about a true believer, whose faith and trust is in Jesus Christ, who refuses to accept his love, his forgiveness, and in his sustaining grace to you and for you. Now, obviously, having heard how Joseph responded, they come to him, verse 18, his brothers also came and fell down before him, and they said, behold, we are your servants. How many times has it been now that they've bound down before him? Is it five? I lost count. Remember, initially, in the field, when Joseph was 17, he went to his brothers and said, hey, bros, guess what? I had a dream. And you're all going to be bound down to me one day. And they didn't like the dream, and knowing perhaps that it actually came from God, if you want to quench the dream, you get rid of the dreamer. And that they did. And that dream was fulfilled, wasn't it? They bowed down to their brother more than once, and here they bow again. The prince of Egypt, the one they had sinned against. And here's a principle to take away. As sinners saved by grace, when you do sin, bow down before the one you have sinned against, meaning God. We sin against him ultimately. David sinned. Yeah, he sinned against Israel. He sinned against his family. He sinned against the woman he sinned with. But ultimately he said what? God, it's you and you alone that I've sinned against. We We bow down before him our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and we confess our sins. Why? Because Ephesians 1.7 says, in him we have redemption. <laughs> the one we bow down to, in him we have redemption. These brothers were redeemed by their brother in a physical sense. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the, rich, the riches of his grace in which he lavished upon us. Rest in that. Accept that. Verse 19. And Joseph said to them, notice this. In whose voice does this echo? Do not, what? Fear. Do not fear, verse 19. Again, in verse 21. Do not fear. Why? Because in between those two reassuring statements to not fear, he gives the reason why they need not to fear. And again, once again, the theology of Joseph comes off the page. Verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. That's his theology. So... It shines through once again. He refers here to the sovereignty of God and his, his providence in the whole situation that results in, here it is, forgiveness. Forgiveness. So he says, God in his providence used your sin, and yes, I say it was sin. He used your sin to accomplish his purposes. But notice what he does not say. Never make this mistake, by the way. He does not say, since God in his providence used your sin to accomplish his purpose, your sin is no longer considered sin. As some foolishly conclude. 
He's very clear. You did sin. You did intend to harm me. God didn't make you act the way he did because he's sovereign. You didn't make God act the way he did because of your free sinful will. No. You did exactly what your sinful fallen will wanted to do, and God did everything he does according to his nature. His will. You did according to your nature, willfully. He does according to his nature, willfully. The result is his perfect will is accomplished. There's a mystery for you, don't I? I remember exactly what you did to me, but I canceled the debt. Yeah. Do not fear. I will provide for you. I will provide for your little ones. Thus, he said, be comforted. He spoke to them kindly. Loving kindness, verse 21. So here you have a passionate pledge of commitment to care for them. And here again, we see the Lord's heart in Joseph. Listen to this, Psalm 103. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. I don't know how many times I meditate on the fact that God is slow to anger or I would have been crushed before I ever left my daddy's house. Crushed. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, right? You go east, you're always going east. East and west never meet. You go north, you're eventually going south. East and west never meet. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. That is steadfast love and mercy. So all who come to God through Christ confessing sins, believing upon the righteousness of Christ, trusting in Christ for one's salvation. Your sins are taken away and revealed as having been atoned for on Calvary's cross 2,000 years ago as prophesied, promised, and therefore fulfilled. Never to be brought up again. Or held against you. Do you believe the word of God? Isaiah 43, 21. I, says God, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. Did you get that? For my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. So, beloved, if you're a Christian here this morning and you're feeling condemned of your past, you've confessed your sins, you're a repentant believer, you entrust yourself fully and completely to God through Jesus Christ, his one and only son, you have the Holy Spirit, you're a child of God. If you feel condemned or you're hearing words of condemnation, it's not the voice of God. Did you get that over here? It's not the voice of God. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Does that mean he'll never convict you of unrepentant sin? Of course not. Let's get it straight. We have the spirit who convicts. He does not condemn. 
Christ bore your condemnation. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken. You'll never be forsook, right? You'll never be condemned. So believe it. They didn't believe it. They didn't believe the loving kindness of their brother for 12 years, right? They lived without judgment. And now that dad's gone, they think he's going to crush them. He does not. He actually weeps because they thought as such. So another implication as we move along, another implication here drawn from the text is that uh, as a forgiven people, we must forgive. Amen? As a forgiven people. Many times we think that we're, we're worthy of forgiveness, but the guy down the hall or down, maybe down the row is not. We stand as forgiven. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. That's Joseph right there. Colossians 3.13, bear with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, go to the pastor and tell him. (laughs) You are all paying attention. Look. If one has a complaint against another, forgive each other. In in other parts of the scripture, go to the brother or go to the sister. Don't go to the pastor or another brother or another sister. Forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you. And, of course, the only alternative forgiveness is unforgiveness, which results in bitterness and all that. And we've all experienced that. You know, bitter people are grace killers. I've killed grace before with bitterness. So as objects of salvific grace, as recipients of grace, we've made objects that are now givers of grace. Amen? Givers of grace. You know, it's been said, quote, holding on to unforgiveness is like drinking poison while hoping the other person dies. It's one of those, it's been said because I don't know who said it. It is holding on to unforgiveness is like drinking poison while hoping the other person dies. And you end up giving them a certain amount of control over your life. You know, there's people that are six feet under that still have control over you because you have unresolved bitterness towards them. Unforgiveness towards them. And you're still bitter and they're dead. Dead. Maybe for five years or 10 years or 20 years, and you're bitter. As a forgiven people, we're enabled to forgive. One commentator writes, we hold the debt close to us like a cherished possession, not realizing that we are, in fact, the one being possessed. See, forgiveness does not mean, beloved, that we forget as in though we have no ability to remember any longer, right? And and trust me, God doesn't forget like that. He's sovereign. He knows everything. He can't forget anything. What he's saying here is that forgiveness is that in spite of the memory of the offense, the the debt is erased. I remember people who've sinned against me. I remember things that were done. I mean, there's certain smells or certain sights. He just brings it to memory. The point is their debt has been canceled. 
My debt to God has been canceled through Jesus Christ. So as having been forgiven and owe no debt because Christ paid the debt, I don't have to hold a grudge. I'm enabled. So Joseph, you know, as we look at the account, it's not so much that he was a great man. It's not so much that he's a sinner saved by grace. It's not so much that he was a great man as it was that he had great faith in a great God. Great faith in a great God. So in verses 22 to 26, we bid farewell to Joseph, who, who really understood, he really realized the existential um, confession of Romans 8.28. And we said, what's, eight, what's Romans 8.28? What do we say? See, you got it right. See, most people leave off that first part that you two just cited. They say, you know, um, all things work together for the good of those who love God and call according to his purpose. And they leave out the beginning, the first three words. And we know. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. There again, we must be reminded of these things, amen? Because we know this. So we need to own this. So here then with Joseph is another gesture of faith, just like his father, with regard to his bones, the fact that God will surely visit us. He knows God promises to visit us, and he wants his bones taken into the land of his father with his peeps. But that won't happen for a long time. But it happens, doesn't it? It happens. Another gesture of faith of a faithful man who trusts in an ever-faithful God. And it's all about God. So we, we may face, we're able, I should say, to face life and death with the same assurance as these forefathers. Same hope as a redeemed, forgiven people. And as forgiven people, we've been made a forgiving people who hold on to an eternal hope. So it's hope and forgiveness is our takeaway of the text. Now, neither Jacob nor Joseph will live to see the return to Canaan. But as the author of Hebrews points out, and I'm almost done, Hebrews 11, 13, these all died in what? In faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. We too, beloved, are strangers and exiles. Amen? Remember, we're pilgrims progressing. Pilgrims, wanders, we're on the move. But while we're here, we have the blessing of the friendship of God, the residing presence of God by way of the Holy Spirit within us. We have one another. We have the fellowship. We have the word. And we have faith. Jesus said, in me you may have peace, right? He said that to his disciples, right? In the world you will have, guarantee, tribulation, but take heart. I've overcome the world. He's overcome so that we can live and be led by grace. We can love, we can remember, and we can forgive by grace. Forgiveness and hope. Because we too, like Jacob and Joseph, we will die. Guarantee. We will die. And it's only then we inherit our full reward. Amen? It's not here. 
It's easy to get caught up here. It's not here. And we need to be reminded of this. We've been granted forgiveness. We've been given a great hope. We're a redeemed, purchased people so that we can hold on to these words. Isaiah 65, listen to this in closing. Behold. Okay, this is an Old Testament prophecy, beloved. I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. So this we long for, amen? We have this hope. So I trust, beloved, as a believing people, you are looking forward with confidence to that day. I trust and I hope that you will be present there, for it is only by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ does anyone enter there. So for anyone here who's not a believer, for anyone who's rejected the gospel to this point, look, it's, it's this simple. In the end, it's heaven or hell. In the end, it's Christ or the second death. You're already guaranteed the first death. The second death is separation from a holy, righteous God in His grace, only to face forever His wrath. God is not absent from hell. He's there in His wrath because He's omnipresent. He is the escape. The one who is just is the justifier. So if that's you this morning, I I leave you with these words. The word is near you now. It's gone in your ears. It's in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we proclaim because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, not believing about it, Believing him who did it, you shall be saved. So the command is repent and believe. And you will become and realize you're a forgiven person who has this hope with these around you have. May the Lord bless his word to your heart this morning. We do thank you, dear God, for your loving kindness. Thank you for this narrative and this picture, this, this, this small glimpse is one part of the great story of redemption. Your story, Lord. This is your story. And we are simply recipients. All the focus is on you. You're the main actor. And we look to you. So, Lord, bless your people. Bless your word to their heart this morning. Help us to persevere by faith. Help us to be forgiving, reminding us how much we've been forgiven. Help us to hold on to the hope that we have and help us to remind one another of this hope as we walk as a forgiven people, all the while forgiving by the grace that's been imparted to us. We pray in Jesus' name.